0: Hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Paul Howard, who's here to discuss his fantastic book about Tara Brown. I read the news today, oh boy. Paul Howard is a multi-award winning journalist, author and playwright. He's best known in his native Ireland as the creator of Ross O'Carroll Kelly, the fictional rugby jock. I'm always fascinated by the life stories of the people that the Beatles surrounded themselves with. Uh, They're almost always as as interesting as the Beatles themselves, and Tara's certainly no different. He rode the popular wave of the 60s expertly. He was one of Swinging London's most popular faces, lived fast and died young, and was immortalised forever, as we all know, in the opening lines of A Day in the Life but who was this apparently lucky man who made the grade and then blew his mind out in a car paul howard hello welcome to the beatles books podcast how are you i'm great. yeah
1: it's a, it's a it's a pleasure to talk to you it's a pleasure to talk to anyone in these uh, we're we're still lo- just emerging from lockdown here you know so for the last 15 months it's just been nice to talk to anyone that's not <laughs> that's not meant as a slight on you but it's it's just great to have a conversation with somebody about something that's that's happy as well.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's begin that conversation. We're here to talk about, I read the news today, oh boy, your fascinating look at the life of, the short and gilded life, the note on the cover of the book says, of Tara Brown, um, the man that most of my listeners will know inspired the song A Day in the Life from Sergeant Pepper. Um, If you could start by by showing with us where, if you can remember where you first heard the name Tara Brown, and then how did you get from that that journey from hearing the name to actually writing the book?
1: I think I knew the story long before I heard the name and it was the story that captivated, more, captivated me more than the name. When I was a kid we only really had one thing of real value in the house and that was Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. My, my dad bought the album when it came out. My dad had terrible taste in music like you know like he liked, like he liked Crystal Gale and like, he liked all this kind of... Like, he liked Neil Diamond, the jazz singer, and he liked all this kind of country and Western stuff, you know? Mm. So there was nothing really to be found in his records press except for Sgt. Pepper, like, you know? So it was kind of like panning for gold. And when you found that, you knew it was special. And as a child, I always wanted to... It had the, the cardboard insert in the middle with the mustache and the epaulettes and everything. I just wanted to cut that out. You know, your kids, you just want to... chop all those up, and I wasn't allowed to so I suppose I had a sense it had to be handled in a certain way none of us was allowed to touch this album Uh, so I kind of had a sense that this was a really special record and I remember listening to it for the first time uh, in the late 70s I was probably seven or eight years of age and I remember my brother said to me listen to this and I had these big earphones on that covered my ears. My dad had a sharp three-in-one stereo. And My brother, Mark, dropped the needle on the last song. And it was a day in the life. And it was extraordinary. I mean, it blew my mind. Like, that was, that was the day I discovered music. That was really the day I discovered music. And it was Lennon, that kind of strange, kind of disembodied voice, uh, ghostly. Because I think he sang, I think he put the microphone on the other side of the room or something to sing, the, to sing the lyrics. And it's Lennon essentially, you know, inviting us all to rubberneck at the scene of an accident. And there's, a, there's a, you know, somebody dead in a car, uh, in, you know, b- badly stricken. And we're all rubberneckers at the scene and we're all asking each other, is this the guy who's from the House of Lords? So that story, I think I was fascinated by that. I I love real stories and songs. I'm always trying to find out song meanings, you know, and what inspired particular songs. I'm just obsessed with that. And probably when I was in my 20s, I got a present of Steve Turner's book, A Hard Day's Right. And that's when I read Tara Brown's name. I I had some vague idea. I don't know how, but I had some vague idea that um, the lucky man who made the grade and blew his mind out in the car was Irish. Um, and I don't know how I knew that, but I did have a sense of that growing up that he was Irish, and that he was a real he'd really lived this person. And then I read in a hard day's right that he was called Tara Brown. His father was a member of the House of Lords, and his mother was Una Guinness, which kind of in Ireland made him royalty twice over. The Guinnesses were the closest thing we had to a to a royal family, and uh, and I started to kind of read a bit about his life. I was working as a journalist at the time, and. Uh, I pitched an, a story on Tara's 40th anniversary in 2006. I pitched a story to the Sunday Tribune uh, magazine editor about, about Tara Brown. Because I kind of felt there's a lot, there's just so many interesting strands to his life. And I wrote the piece. And when you're writing for a newspaper, you know, deadlines are quite tight. And quite often you have to let a, a, something go before it's properly baked, and that's what was that was the case with the Tara Brown story. The piece ran in the papers, the front page of the magazine, and I was kicking myself because I felt I'd only s- just scratched the surface of his life story. And to to do the piece, I went and met Gareth Brown, who was Tara's brother. And Gareth lived in in Lugulaw in this kind of really, kind of like a it, it, it looked like a kind of fairy tale castle in the in the Wicklow Mountains at the bottom of a of a kind of deep ravine. And I went and interviewed Gareth about his brother. And I mean, that that just increased the fascination for me. So when the piece appeared, I was kicking myself. It, it didn't even scratch the surface of the story. So then I went back to Gareth and said, look, I would love to do a bigger project on your brother. I'd love to write a book. And I think, I think it took about two years of visiting Gareth before he agreed to me. You know, I had to kind of get his trust first. And, um, and then eventually he, he agreed to it. So that, that kind of accounted for the next 10 years of my life of researching this man who, who only lived until he was 21, but man, managed to pack so much into that life.
0: Talking of packing stuff into a life, one of the really remarkable photos in the book for me is this picture of Tara uh, that's taken in Venice and he's got his swept over blonde hair and the striped shirt on. And he looks like, I don't know. He, he, look, he almost looks like he could be like 25, but he, in fact, he's like, obviously, yeah. a, he, he, he's a child. Um, his childhood was remarkable. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about what made it so remarkable and what was it that led to him seeming so much older than he actually was?
1: Well, I think the reason he seemed so much older than he was was because he didn't really have a conventional childhood. I mean,. You know, by the standards of of the time, he didn't really have a childhood at all, because by the time he was seven or eight years of age, Una, his mother, regarded him as an adult. I mean, she, she led this, um, you know, interesting life where she she, she had her, her, her Paris life and her Venice life and her New York life and her London life and her Irish life. And she just moved between, and Saint-Tropez. So she just kind of moved between six places all the time. And... He was essentially her chaperone. You know, she, she dressed him like a man. You know, he was kind of wearing, very dapper. He knew how to dress and um, he was drinking. I mean, Victoria Ormsby-Gore, who I interviewed for the book, she had a memory of him sitting on, sitting on the stairs in Leakslip Castle, which was Desmond Guinness's house. And he had a scotch in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And he was, he was 13 Right, so and he's saying to Victoria, I'm thinking of giving up drinking and smoking (laughs) at 13 years of age. It's just, it's just, it's it's from another world or something. So he always had this kind of you know man child sense to him. Like even people who were kind of five or six years older than him, kind of 18, 19 years of age, when they met him at 13, they go, a lot of them said the same thing to me. It was like he'd evolved fully formed from an egg. That was one thing that was said, and the other thing was. It was like he'd lived before because he had so much, so much knowledge, so much life experience by the age of 13. You couldn't but believe that he'd lived another life, but he hadn't. It was just that his mother had essentially cut short his childhood and said, you're, you're raised now and left him not to his own devices because she was present in his life, but emotionally he was incredibly independent. He was very self-contained They were incredibly liberated, the Guinnesses. Like Tara rarely went to school. I think his school career lasted about kind of two years, two and a half years. And classically, what he and Gareth, his brother, would do if they didn't like a school, which was essentially always, they would leave uh, in a taxi. And they would would be sent to these really expensive boarding schools. And they would just sort of phone a taxi and and it would come and get them. Gareth went to one in England uh, called Royston and I think Lucian Freud, who was a friend of Una's, had recommended it to her for Gareth. And Gareth didn't like it, and he left in a taxi, phoned a taxi, in it, and um, <laughs> the, the, he was explained to the taxi, he had no idea where he was going, like, you know? And he explained to the taxi driver, you know, how if we were meant to, meant to be treated like sheep, we would have been born as sheep, you know? And the taxi driver took sympathy on him and brought him home and Gareth ended up living with the taxi driver and, and his wife for about two weeks. And he would ring his mother every day and say, you know, I'm still alive, tootle pip. And this is what they were like. And they were kids. And but they had almost total freedom. Tara had a childhood friend called Lucy Hill. And Lucy, I spoke to Lucy, and she she would be flown over from London for play dates with Tara. And this was this was kind of the early 50s 53 54 when air travel was still a novelty like you know if you flew three times in 10 years you you were flying a lot like that was frequent fly, frequent flyer stuff but so she was being flown over every weekend she said to me her memory of that time was just of exhaustion because she said we were never told when to go to bed so she said when we finished we finished playing at you know three o'clock in the morning and you woke up on the floor lying down among Tara's train sets and his cars and everything. And then you sort of slept where you fell or you slept where you kind of just collapsed out of exhaustion. And nobody ever knocked on the door and said, you know, you're making too much noise or you've stayed up too late. So she said there were no boundaries to your fun. And she said that for a child was just utterly exhausting. Mm. And it was kind of like that you know, it's, as he got older as well. I mean, when Tara was 13, he was getting, I think the Daily Mail report, ran a report and they said he was getting £2,000 a week in the 50s. I mean, you can only imagine, I, mean, I've, I, I think that equates to something like £14,000 a week or something now, you know? But then as well as that, his mother, Una, she ran this kind of salon uh, in the house, the house I mentioned, Lugala. It's a spectacular house. And mostly for the setting, it's set on 5,000 acres and it's just, there's deer everywhere. Uh, There's a lake in the middle of the property that from up above, the most people actually look down. You can only see it from a kind of elevated part of the road. And it looks like Guinness because it's a black, the water is black and there's the perfect white sandy beach on the side it's a, it's spectacular and it's a freak. For years the Guinnesses were accused of importing the sand from Barbados. It's it's that white and clear. So so it, he lived in this fairy tale setting. And Una had this kind of salon thing. She liked the company of intellectuals. She liked writers. She liked artists. Um, you know, I mentioned Lucien Freud was her friend, Brendan Bean was a regular visitor, Cyril Connolly, Robert Key, very clever. Very often very wealthy, often very drunken, very liberated people. And Tara learned from them, literally sitting at their feet every night while this, these conversations are taking place. Una had one rule in her house. It didn't matter how disgracefully you behaved as long as you weren't boring. And there were many people who were banned from the house for being boring. But if you, if you did something appalling, like if you behaved really badly, if you upset somebody if you drunkenly made a pass at someone else's wife, you would always be asked back because that was what you were there for. It was all part of the fun. And Una had this brilliant sense of mischief. She had this really wicked Anglo-Irish sense of humor. She would, she would invite couples and the seating plan would be determined by what would most likely cause sparks. So ex-husbands would find themselves sitting next to ex-wives or ex-boyfriends and girlfriends. And then she would arrange the bedroom. The sleeping arrangements would be also arranged in such a way that not all of the rooms in Logalaw opened onto a passageway. Some of them you had to walk through another bedroom to get to the bedroom, but she would put exes in different be- adjoining bedrooms so they had to see. <laughs> so, it was, So that was kind of a bit of a flavor of what was going on there. But he grew up in that environment where he was just breathing the air of liberated people and very rarely had the company of people his own age. So it's no surprise that he see, that he seemed much older than he
0: was. So after that childhood, and I say childhood, he, he ends up in Paris. Um, and then at the start of 1962 he arrives in London, slightly pre-swinging London. Um, if you could just tell us what impelled him to, to go to London at, at that point, after his, his already his considerable adventures across Europe, mm. and what kind of London was it that he found when he arrived?
1: Well, his dad had just moved to London. Lord oran Moran Brown lived in this huge castle in County Mayo uh, called Castle McGarrett. And... I suppose after the war, that way of living was gone. You know, this idea of, you know, the Edwardian uh parties, you know, there's a country parties and 40 people would come for the weekend and, and shoot woodcock. And, you know, they dress in tuxedos for dinner and someone would bang a gong and they'd have cocktails, all that kind of, that was dying out hmm. because those people essentially were going to had to pay for the war there was no money to pay for the war so people like his father were essentially taxed out of existence and so lord oramorn brown sold the house in mayo and he was married to an actress called Sally gray and they moved to london and they moved from that castle to a flat in london so i suppose that was what drew tara to london in the first place his mother had married this. Uh, her third husband was a dress designer called Miguel Ferreras, uh, and he was just this kind of mysterious playboy character, uh, a dress designer um, who who you know wanted to be in the next Coco Chanel, but had this secret Nazi past that only became uncovered when her private detectives. Uh, essentially tried to extricate her from this marriage you know her solicitors hired hired these private detectives and they found out that he wasn't who he said he was he'd stolen someone's name from you know a a dead person's name after the war to get out of spain where franco was looking for him so so you had all this 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 kind of tumultuous thing going on in tara's life and i think he was in paris living with una and miguel and miguel's business wasn't going well He was bleeding his mother dry. And I think Tara just wanted to get out. I think he didn't want to look at this anymore. And he was 17 and his father uh, was living in London. So it was a good excuse to say, I'm going to stay with, I'm going to stay with daddy. But he never stayed with daddy. He was essentially 17 years of age, footloose and fancy free in London, just as London started to swing. And, What kind of made him perfect for swinging London was that he had seen the way his mother and father had lived and they were already swinging. One of the really interesting things I think about about swinging London is this idea that it was somehow new. But, you know, the aristocracy had been living like that. You know, we all know about the the time between the two wars with the, you know, the, the way the Mitfords lived and people like that. And Una Guinness was part of that circle. So he had kind of watched this. So I think he was quite sharp to what was going on and he would have been very, very keenly aware that what was happening in London in the 60s was essentially a democratisation of the way his parents and their peers had been living for 30 years anyway. Um, And I think that's why he was so at ease with what was happening in Swinging London and why he would have kind of presented quite an attractive figure to... People on the scene, you know people who were kind of getting to know this this swinging London scene he had it sourced instantly
0: talking of the the scene enter stage left the McCartneys you talk in the book about how you spoke to Mike McCartney about Tara if you could just tell us a little bit about what that meeting was like, and what do you think you know these two The McCartneys, these two working-class boys, a world away from the world that you've just described. Tell us a little bit about the the kind of the basis of the friendship between between Paul and Mike and Tara. What do you think appealed to Paul in particular about Tara as as a person?
1: I think Paul at that time was flitting through life like a butterfly into different scenes. I think that was Paul's thing. Like Paul would would kind of enter a particular scene, would observe it, it would, you know, would inspire his songwriting and then he would flit on to the next thing. I think his friendship with Mike was much more enduring. And I think his friendship with the Rolling Stone was much more enduring. I think the, um, the class thing is very, very interesting because I'm kind of fascinated by socioeconomic class. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Tara... That the Rolling Stones and the, and Paul and Mike were drawn to Tara because I think they had actually they had an awful lot in common. Mostly what they had in common, but there was the music, there was the drugs, there was the drink, but there was also this kind of hedonistic attitude, you know, in the sixties. Um, this liberation that happened. Gareth, Tara's brother, what he hated more than anything else in life were middle class people. <laughs> <laughs> and he absolutely loved the working classes and he loved his own class, the aristocracy, but he just did he just couldn't warm to middle-class people. And I think that's where the Stones and the Beatles connected. I think their kind of urges were very similar. You know, I, I think that there was that sort of lack of lack of an embarrassment gene. You notice this with the Guinness family, Well, like um, when I was doing the research for the book, Una, Tara's mother had kept these albums, hundreds of albums, big kind of leather bound albums which are full of photographs and also newspaper cuttings and alongside the photographs of weddings and you know christenings, all these good news stories, there's all these photos there's all these newspaper clippings of incidents that you know would would bring great shame to a middle class family you know but they were just so like for instance, you know Gareth was involved in a court case where, you know, he was was 19, he had an affair with a 55-year-old married woman, uh, and it was splashed all over the newspapers in Ireland. Now, if it was me, I know my mother would have been buying up every single newspaper in Ireland to make sure nobody got to read about it. But in the Guinness family, these these were cut out and put in the family albums with little comments underneath saying, silly Gareth and things like that. (laughs) So they didn't really have all of that stuff that... That Keith Richards talks about, you know, about we didn't care about shame. We didn't care about embarrassment. We didn't want to, you know, we didn't want to live with kind of the judgments of our parents' generation. That was all a huge part of it. And then the other thing I think is clothes. Clothes. Tara dressed like a dandy and that kind of dandy style. Tara had been dressing like a dandy since he was kind of 10 years of age, you know, kind of Edwardian frock coats and all sorts of stuff before they were fashionable again in, in, in sixties London. So I think the clothes as well, that would have been an attraction to Mike and Paul on the stones as well. Um, and then I think on top of that, I mean, he was kind of drinking in, you know, the Scotch at St. James and places like that. So they were kind of breathing the same air as each other. It was kind of the early days of of Beatlemania, where they were but where, you know, in pubs and that they were quite they were quite accessible, I think, the Beatles. Mm. And I think, you know, as well, there was just the fact that they hit it off. They were just they just became good pals, especially Mike McCartney and Tara.
0: Now, at the same time that London is swinging and and all this stuff is going on, Tara is a married man with two young children, which is slightly skewiff of the image of the kind of man about town uh, that we hear of in in swinging London. How did he cope with... How did he he fit that kind of world into the bohemian kind of roly-poly 60s world?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting because... Mike told me this amazing story. He said that he'd been friends with Tara for about two years and Tara's mother, who was worried about the way Tara and Nikki were raising the two children. She bought the house opposite their muse in Eaton place in London, just sort of, I'll buy the house opposite so I can keep an eye on them. And Mike told me that one day he called to Tara and they were going, they were going out somewhere. They're going to a club in Chelsea and he said, just before we go, I just want to pop into my mother and say, you know, I have to give her a message or something. So they pop into the house and Mike said, while I'm there, there's two little blonde kids there and I'm chatting to the kids. And anyway, Tara says, OK, let's go. And off they went. And he said, we're walking through. I think it was somewhere around Sloan Square. And Mike said to Tara, by the way, who, who, who are those kids back there? And Tara said, they're my kids. And Mike said we had been friends for two years, and he had never ever mentioned that he had children, which kind of shows you where priorities were. You know, he had he met Nikki when he was, you know, 18, just turned 18. So it wasn't long after he arrived in London. And Nikki was a was a postman's daughter. Um, she was from Ireland, she was Irish and incredibly glamorous, incredibly sexy a little bit older than Tara, a lot more wise in the ways of that London, not, not necessarily kind of London generally, but but the kind of the club world. Uh, so she was friends with Ronan O'Rahilly and people like that in London. She was She was very, very wild. And she was living with an artist at the time. And she was Tara's first love. And he just was besotted with her, fell madly in love with her. Um there's a great photo shoot that the Tara and Nikki did with Anita Pallenberg and Brian Jones for Vogue. And if you can, you know, your listeners can Google the photographs, they're absolutely incredible. And just you know, they really bring home the 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 times. It's like a, a snapshot of the time. They're kind of dressed in these fantastic clothes and and you can see how much in love they are, but they're like two twin couples because Nikki actually quite looked like uh Anita especially with the cropped hair and they had very prominent teeth, big smiley faces and Tara and Brian Jones were always mistaken for each other. They were all, I have a photograph just before Tara died of Tara and Brian came to Ireland and stayed with Tara and Luggalaw about four weeks before Tara died in November 66. And it's like looking at two twins. They are just almost identical, but the kids weren't, were definitely not, not present in his life, you know, and, he had made this mistake. So Nikki got pregnant very quickly. Una felt that Nikki had tricked Tara and deliberately got herself pregnant because she wanted a, a chunk of Guinness money. Uh, I interviewed Nikki quite a lot before she died, actually. And she was heartbroken until the day she died about this broken love affair, you know, from the 60s. And it, she lost her the access to the kids in the end. And Tara's death was really a scar on her life as well. But... It was totally the wrong time. It's it is fascinating that Tara would would you know while he was totally liberated, while he was one of the faces on the in sixties London, while he was just so much part of the scene, would make the mistake that his mother made in marrying as a teenager, and. I think that's really interesting. It's almost like he was caught between what, what he f- instinctively felt he should be doing, which was just living his life and not making the mistakes that his parents made. And 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 then that there's a, the tug of tradition. You know, this is what the Guinnesses always did. They all got married in their teens. They all had a couple of kids. And then they just moved on to the second wife. And Tara was well on his way to doing that at 21. You know, the divorce divorce proceedings had already begun at the age of 21 una was in the process at that point of of taking control of the kids which she felt that it was in their best interests that you know nikki and tara weren't conventional parents you know they weren't looking after them really um and um so that process had begun but it's absolutely crazy thinking about what he did because nobody in his circle was settling down. They were all out there having multiple sexual partners. They were having, you know, they were drinking, they were taking drugs, they were, and Tara kind of tried to live both
0: lives. Fascinating. Uh, so we arrive at the book at Christmas 1965 where I think Tara uh, and Nikki they go up to the Wirral to stay with Paul and Mike's dad, the, yeah. uh, the wonderful Jim McCartney for Christmas or just after Christmas I think um, and, and there is where Paul has this this kind of fated moped accident which uh, some people might know led on to some other uh, theories shall we say further down the line um, if you could just tell us a little bit about what went on that Christmas um, and and what led to that famed moped accident.
1: Yeah, but Paul, Paul McCartney, according to Paul McCartney's account, they had gone up just, just after Christmas. Um, I think Tara, Tara went up alone. He and, he and Nicky's relationship was kind of coming apart at that point. They were rowing a lot, and Tara went to Liverpool alone, and Nicky took off after him and followed him. And. I think it was probably quite strained between them and, you know, they were staying in the house and uh, and I can't imagine how awkward it was, but Paul and Tara decided to escape one night by getting out and they went to see Paul's aunt Beth and they'd been smoking um, whatever they were smoking. (laughs) It wasn't (laughs) cigarettes. I know that it wasn't, it wasn't just tobacco, put it that way. Um, And they're on these mopeds and Paul was high and he kept saying to Tara, Tara, look at the moon, look at the moon. And Tara kept saying, Paul, look at the look at the road. And Paul's front wheel clipped, clipped the curb. And Paul was thrown headfirst over the over the handlebars, uh, split his lip and broke his front tooth. And the this was the accident that would later give rise to the Paul is dead mania that started on you know american university campuses a couple of years later the fact that tara brown the only witness to the accident was dead at that point I think kind of fanned the flames of the legend that Paul had died and been switched with a double because that was the theory that it was, that it was Paul who died and that Tara Brown had been pretending to be Paul for the the past two years. Um, It is, it is interesting when you look back on photographs of that time because of the haircuts, so many people did look like each other. And while Tara looked like Paul, it looked like Brian Jones in a lot of photographs. He also looked quite like Paul McCartney at times. Um, There's lots of, mislabeled photographs of, um, of, of Paul McCartney on Google search. You know, there's there Tara Brown underneath, you know, and, and sometimes you do have to stare at them. and think, is it? It might be him. But yeah, so Tara was the only witness to that, to that fateful accident. I think I'm right in saying that it, it was the last time Paul and Tara saw each other because, because Tara died in his own car accident um, within a year.
0: So after that, we for me, the kind of heart of the book is the, this 21st birthday party that Tara gives, um, which, I don't know, it felt almost like the, the high point of the, the whole decade for some of the people that were there. Um, and it, it's, it would turn out to be, obviously, Tara's last birthday. Just if you could just share with us who was there for a start, because the guest list is is considerable and what was it about about this party that that was kind of the the peak of, of, of Tara's life and and almost of the kind of the sixties itself
1: i think it was the timing of the party that was um that made it so iconic you know it's summer, coming to the summer of 66 it's the summer of, you know, those three great albums that came out within weeks of each other, you know, Revolver, Blonde on Blonde and Pet Sounds. I mean, that's just, I, that's the soundtrack of these times. The party, the Love and Spoonful were the band. They were hired to play uh, at the event. And uh, I spoke to John Sebastian about the party and he, he has this memory, uh, really colourful memory of, of uh, you know, driving down to Lugalock you leave the road and you drive down into this valley, and the drive down adds to the experience because it's a good ten minutes before you actually get to this fairy tale kind of cat. It looks like a it looks like a tear of wedding cake, and it's really spectacular. And he remembered the deer, and he said it was like Ivanhoe. That's what he kept thinking. It's like this, is like Ivanhoe, and Una had paid for them. They were they were Tara's favorite band, the Love and Spoonful, and. I think they were number one in America, if not that week, certainly shortly afterwards. Um, so they're huge. Like she, she's hired one of the biggest bands in the world to play her twenty-first son's 21st birthday party and flown them to Ireland to do it. And then so, we, so essentially the guest list was, it was where all of Tara's various worlds transected. So you had Swinging London, but then you also had the sort of, Anglo-Irish aristocracy, you know, your members of the House of Lords were there. You had, uh, you know, old Bohemian friends of Unas from the West of Ireland, you know, and then, and then Mick Jagger and, you know, Anita Pallenberg and Brian Jones. I found out since the party, uh, it's not in the book, but I found out subsequently that Mick Fleetwood was there and he played the drums with the Loving Spoonful. So it was kind of, it was kind of everyone and everyone. Um, Lots of, People from kind of you know Irish social life well known TV personalities, ambassadors, you know people like you know members of the um, kind of landed gentry, any but you know any kind of old lords or viscounts that were knocking about they were there, and then this kind of rock and roll world so you had you know the, the kind of Brendan Bean type people who were sort of supping Guinness in the corner, and then you had Brian Jones. And Anita Pallenberg on acid. And, you know, there's this famous image of, of the photograph was taken of Brian Jones on the hill on the way down to Lugalo on the way to the party. And he was high on acid and he said, stop the car because he'd seen uh, a, a dead goat on the side of the road. And he, he got out and he sort of stared at this goat for half an hour and was. I don't know. I have no idea what he was seeing. But that was kind of part of the legend of the party. And then at that time, the IRA had just blown up Nelson's Pillar, excuse me. It's a smaller version of Nelson's column on O'Connell Street in Dublin. And the, the IRA had blown it up. And the week before, I think, but the rubble was all still there. And Brian Jones got into a taxi on his own and asked to be taken to Dublin, which is a good hour drive away because he wanted to see fallen Nelson, <laughs> So it was, a, it, was, it was a mad party. There, lots of people who were there remembered Jimmy Scott. And I've seen the photographs of Jimmy Scott there. And uh, Jimmy Scott was wearing, in the photographs, he's wearing these kind of African tribal robes. That's certainly what they look like to me. Um, and people remembered him saying, obla Oblada. We drink. I take a drink and then I die. And it was a kind of ritual thing, a pre-drink ritual thing. And then we pour some of it on the carpet, and then he would drink this incredible carpet, like this, four inches thick, and probably cost more than my house, you know. And he's pouring whiskey on it. Um, and then the other thing that everybody remembered from the party was uh, Una had a Magritte painting, and she had this made. Uh, who I think was a bit short-sighted and she saw what she thought was dirt on the, on the painting while she was cleaning or what she thought, yeah, she thought it was dirt, but it was actually stars, kind of flecks of paint that were stars. And she took the chamois to it and tried to clean the, the dust off the painting. And she, she didn't know when to stop going. <laughs> she just kept at it. Not at it, not at it. So anyway, the, they had this McGree painting that was kind of the top half was missing so they'd half of them agreed, and typical of the Guinnesses, they decided to just leave it up. They just thought, well, that's kind of funny. They had this kind of wicked, almost kind of Oscar Wilde type humor and and way of seeing the world, you know. And uh, so they left it up. And the number of people I interviewed in London that, who said to me when they were talking about the party, I "went, oh, I remember them. I don't remember much, but I remember the half of them agreed." <laughs> So it was a bit of a crazy, it was a bit of a crazy night. Uh, The typical of the local parties, I think it went on for about four days and people found beds everywhere and slept on the floor and then just sort of continued into the next day. But a great time was had by all apparently. But it was kind of one of, I think it was a high point for a lot of people because who were there, especially the people who went from London. Una, Una charted a jumbo. To, to bring people from London to the party and one to bring people from Paris. And I think for a lot of people who knew Tara, even if it wasn't their last time seeing him, it was their last time seeing him truly happy. And I think a lot of his friends in particular in London at that time have almost fossilized the memory of him at that party because it's the, the last time they saw him just truly happy, really.
0: So that brings us nicely on to my next kind of question. I got a real sense from the book that almost immediately, sort of after that party, there seemed to be a bit of a downturn in in Tara's life. His marriage has failed. His children, Mm. as you said earlier, had had kind of gone to his mother. Even at that point in late 66, there seemed to be a bit of a change in the atmosphere around London. Um, Tell us a little bit about how that kind of, Affected Tara and where he was toward the end of his life, especially in comparison to, to kind of earlier on in the mid 60s.
1: Yeah, I think at that point, and he said it to a couple of friends of his at the time that the spontaneity had gone out of Swinging London. It actually seemed to be suddenly more of a choreographed thing. And this happens with all movements. You know, it happened with punk, it probably happened with Britpop if you believe Britpop is actually an actual thing at the beginning it's fun because it's spontaneous and then it suddenly feels like it's kind of manufactured and you're faking it. And suddenly you had like Carnaby street was full of tourists. The, the kind of spirit of swinging London was kind of running out. And also I think the, the, the pendulum the 60s sort of cultural pendulum was swinging to America at that stage. You know, the, the, the early 60s, Tara's 60s was all about mop-top haircuts and I want to hold your hand and all that kind of thing, kids breaking out. and And then the later 60s, which I don't think Tara would have liked at all. The, the American Sixties, which was you know Altamont and Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy being assassinated and Manson and Vietnam protests and violence on the streets and and hard drugs as well. That was also that was also a factor. I think that the the drugs were changing. Tara was it was really interested in acid, and he would have been one of the first people at Michael Hollingshead's door when when acid first arrived in London. And I think he had some bad experiences on it, and I think that may well have contributed to uh, this sort of change in his mood. A couple of friends of his told me they they had been with him when he had bad trips, and um, one friend told me in particular that he was playing chess with him while they were they were tripping, and he stared at his friend like he had some he'd had some kind of premonition of something bad happening. But at the same time. A lot of the joy was leaving Tara's life. Um, his marriage had broken up; that had failed. Um, the problem was, I think he and Nikki—he still adored Nikki, and he still loved her. But he knew the relationship wasn't good, and he knew it wasn't lasting. And around the time of his twenty-first, he had kind of—he was fascinated by a mandolier and. Amanda, I spoke to Amanda for the book, actually, you know, Amanda Lear, I mean, reputedly was one of London's first transsexuals, but, you know, always denied it and Tara was besotted with her. You know, fascinated by her and told Nikki. And Nikki went to Amanda and said, Look, my, my husband's 21st birthday is coming up, and, you know, he'd love to spend the night with you. <laughs> when Nikki told me this story, uh, you know, she, she can hear my, my middle class judgment and shock, you know. And I, so she, she said, Paul, it was, the, it was the 1960s. You have to understand that, you know, you have to park those judgments. <laughs> Tara and Amanda were together around the time of his 21st. I think they were together in law. And Una really kind of encouraged this relationship because she was trying to get Nikki off the scene and they spent the night together and Nikki understood that it was going to be a one-off thing, but Tara had totally fallen in love and they were together a lot during that summer. Amanda was in London and this was the summer of Pet Sounds and Revolver. Cause she told me blonde on blonde, they used to sit and listen to these records together in his flat and Nikki was away You know, Nikki told me herself, I mean, she was far from loyal to Tara. She had multiple affairs as well. And she was away in Spain at the time. Um, She wanted them to move to Spain. And Tara was in London and he was having a great time with Amanda. But then they went to Paris. It started to get heavy when the divorce started and solicitors became involved. And Tara and, and Amanda went to Paris and they met Salvador Dali. And Dali fell in love with Amanda as well. And there's this scene that was described to me by somebody who was actually present at the dinner where Dali essentially took Amanda from Tara and he wooed her and he was such a strange man. And the scene in the book, when you read it, it's just, it's like something from a Monty Python sketch, you know, bizarre things he was saying. But Tara lost lost her to Dali and she became his muse and she lived with him for years and she was he painted her many, many times. And so Tara was suddenly single again. His great love was cars and he had this fantastic AC Cobra um, that he was driving around London, but then he lost his license. He was driving up to Liverpool to see Mike and he lost his driving license. So he hadn't been in a car for a few months. And... He just was kind of lost, you know, without wheels, without, a, without his wife, without his girlfriend. He had a sense that London was changing this great, this optimism that they had at the start of the 60s, that everything was going to change, that young people were going to change the world just with the, just the force of their will and youthful optimism. And I think he kind of got a sense that it wasn't going to be like that. And he said to somebody shortly before he died, it wasn't supposed to be like this. So so I think his kind of sense of optimism was was kind of disappearing as well. And that was kind of the final weeks of his life, really.
0: So the the story of, of Tara's death is is obviously well known. Um I mean for the the purposes of, of this podcast, I think it would be good to kind of conclude by looking a little bit at a day in the life itself. Obviously a day in the life is primarily a, a John song. Two kind of questions around that did John know Tara? Was there any kind of friendship there? Um, And what do you think was it about Tara's life and the accident in particular that led to John putting it in his song?
1: Yeah, John, John knew Tara to see, he didn't know him terribly well. He would have been aware that he was a friend of Paul and Mike's. He had been, I think Nikki told me he was in their muse in London once and sort of just stood at the door and observed and then left. And John Lennon had quite a chip on his shoulder about class. Uh, Some people say that's kind of down to his sort of guilt at being raised essentially middle class, but I I don't know. But I mean, Tara certainly wouldn't have been his kind of guy. Like, I don't think he liked those Aristos who who the Stones hung around with. But he would have been aware that he was friends with Paul and he was in the flat one night when Peter Sellers was there, Roman Polanski, This is the amazing thing about Tara's flat. It was just like a it it was just as a drawing point for all these people in swinging London. And Nikki said to me, like you would wake up in the morning and the room would be full of bodies, and you turn them over, you didn't know who was a stone, who was a beetle, who was an animal, who was a kink. Like you know, that's kind of the scene. But John, I don't think John Lennon would have liked that kind of scene, especially there were so many kind of people who were hanging on to Tara, hanging on to his coattails. But he would have been aware that he was a friend of Paul's. John always sought inspiration from newspaper headlines. And at that point, John was running quite dry creatively. Pepper was was Paul's Mm. genius, really. But John Lennon had written Strawberry Fields Forever before Christmas, 66. And this, I mean, for me, it's it's his, it's his great masterpiece. Uh, but it looked like Paul tracks were going to dominate the album. And I think it was under quite a lot of pressure at the time. What's interesting about the songs on Sgt. Pepper is that Paul's were inspired by things he was seeing out there in the world. And I mentioned at the start that he was flitting from scene to scene and absorbing experience and maybe soaking things up like a sponge, people even, you know, and and relating his experiences through songs. John's songs on this album in particular were kind of inspired by domestic things, a circus poster, for instance, that he bought in, a, in an antique shop. And in the case of A Day in the Life, a, a report in the Daily Mail uh, about the custody battle which was which was kind of continuing after tara's death between nikki and una they were fighting for custody of the children and it was it was a, a report on the custody battle in the daily mail that john saw when he put them he put the daily Mail up on the the music stand on the piano opened it and saw this report and you can only imagine what went through his head. I, I'm not sure if he knew that Tara was dead, had died at that stage, but saw the report, saw the mangled car and then spoke to Paul and they had this conversation. And Paul McCartney remembered later that John said to him, you know, would he have inherited his, his father's seat in the house of Lords? And Paul said, no, no, actually I think there's a brother from the the father's first marriage. Who's the next Lord Moran Brown. So they had this conversation about the, about the house of Lords element of, of it. And, um, he started playing the piano and wrote the opening line, I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who made the grade. And it was the story of Tara's death in the car accident just before Christmas, a week before Christmas in in 1966. I think John Lennon would have been quite aware of, of the significance of Tara. I mean, John, John Lennon was a very intuitive guy, obviously. I think he would have understood... Uh, what Tara's friends understood was that he kind of represented something in Swinging London. And I think that's, that's kind of part of the legend of Tara Brown, that he died just before the 60s turned bad. And that's why I think John Lennon would have kind of seen him as quite an interesting figure who was there and actually didn't get to see what followed after the Summer of Love and Sergeant Pepper and, you know, the, this great album of that summer.
0: I think that's a really neat and tidy way to end our conversation, Paul. Um, thank you so much for your time. I read the New today, oh boy, The Short and Good Life of Tara Brown. Uh, I was saying to you before we came on, I inhaled it literally over a oh, weekend. It was, it, it's a wonderful book and I, I recommend it to everyone. So thanks so much for your time.
1: Thanks so much. Thank you.